God, you are our refuge and our strength. A very present help in trouble. And Lord, we pray that we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is no doubt that in each and every one of our hearts, as we feel the earth tremble beneath us, that we fear, that we doubt, that we lack trust and assurance. But I pray, God, that by the, the power of the Holy Spirit and in your word and through your covenant promises, that you would help us to have greater trust, greater hope, greater dependence, and greater faith in you. In you who does all things well, according to the good and wise counsel that you have given unto yourself for the administration of all of creation. Lord, help us to constantly refresh in our minds the great reality that you have created and rule over all things and you hold all things in the palm of your hand. And as is written in the book of Job, that the furthest reaches of the galaxies are but the fringes of what you hold within your hands. Help us to marvel at your greatness, at your goodness, at your glory. Because, Lord, we are so very aware each and every day of the effects of sin in our lives and the lives of others. Whether it be our own sin, whether it be the sin that others bring against us, whether, Lord, it is the effects of sin in the fall of all creation as our bodies and our minds are affected as our culture and institutions and societies are affected we are constantly aware of the devastation of sin of lawlessness, of rebellion. And so I pray, God, that you would help each of us to put aside any lack of trust. Because were it not for you, we have nothing of hope to trust in. Were it not for Christ... We're not for the great redeeming work of Jesus on behalf of His people. We have nothing to hope in. And so as the earth gives way, we pray, O oh God, that You help us to cling to Jesus all the more. 
because of the cross of Christ, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have great hope, not in this world, but in the life that is yet to come. And I pray that, Lord, for our brothers and sisters who suffer, who are in great pain, who are in agony, who question each day what is to come, who wonder if they can take another step and breathe another breath. Father, we pray that you give them great hope and assurance in Jesus, our only hope and stay. We pray for Marilyn. God, help her to persevere. Help her to long all the more for Jesus in her fragile and frail state. Give her greater hope. Give her faith. Give her trust. Give her assurance. We pray, Lord, continually for Jake. Help him to rest his heart in Jesus. Give him courage. Give him patience. Give him faith and assurance. We pray for Sharon Hedgepeth. Lord, as she once again deals with cancer in her body. Lord, as we pray for all of these individuals, heal her as well. Help her to trust that you are good. You are gracious and you are working all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Lord, we know so many who hurt, who suffer, who are in pain and agony, who are longing for release from the bondage of this world. And we pray, God, that Jesus would come quickly. And in this time, in these days, in these hours, we pray for those we know and love who are dead in their transgressions and sins. And we ask, O oh Father, that you would give them new life in Jesus Christ, that you would raise them from the dead, that they would walk in the newness of life with Christ Jesus our Lord. I pray for those in our midst this morning who walk in darkness, that the light would shine brightly in their eyes. They would be driven to their knees and repent and believe the gospel of Christ. Lord, give us joy in our worship today. No matter the circumstances of our lives, help us to orient our hearts on the joy that is ours in Jesus. Help us now, O oh Lord, to delight in your word. Help us to walk in wisdom, to know what is right and true. And do a great work within us, O oh Holy Spirit, to renew our minds, to renew our hearts day by day, that we are obedient and faithful that we love and live by the truth that you have given to us. We thank you and anticipate a great work by your hand. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen. Please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. We'll be looking at the entire chapter of Ecclesiastes chapter 10 this morning. The title of the sermon is The Good Life. Our key words are chance, fool, and words. Now, it's well known in the Kennecott family, it's well documented in our family history, that nine out of ten times when a Kennecott man eats something, his shirt will be stained. So Kennecott wives are very skilled in the art of stain removal. I have gone many days with a white shirt that has a ketchup or a mustard stain on it. And there's usually someone who is oh so very helpful to point it out throughout the day. It's there, it's very noticeable, it stands out, and it is ugly. It looks bad. (laughs) It's a blot that everyone sees. This is the equivalent of how Solomon begins chapter 10. And we have a lot to cover this morning, so I want to jump right into verse 1. (laughs) Solomon writes, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. And so a sweet, fragrant fragrant perfume that has dead, sour-smelling fly carcasses that make it an unbelievable stench. What once smelled great is now a foul perfume. There was once nothing wrong with it, but it, had, it attracted a swarm of flies and their carcasses have made it rancid. And this is the example that Solomon gives us of what folly is like. It doesn't take that much to draw every eye to a ketchup stain on a white shirt. It doesn't take much for the foul stench of a rancid perfume to clear the room. Likewise, it doesn't take long for foolishness to turn things rancid because folly stinks. It's ugly. It is an ugly stain in the life of a fool. One harsh word, one rude remark, one hasty decision, one foolish pleasure, one angry outburst each is capable of ruining so very much. It is so much easier to make a mess than it is to clean it up. Ecclesiastes is so helpful to us because the fragrance of godly wisdom is not learned in one sitting. It is a lifetime of thoughtful reflection on experiences in life and careful study of the Word of God. And in Ecclesiastes, we get a glimpse of Solomon's life to help us look at God instead of ourself, instead of looking to the world for wisdom. And he has done it all, and now he is helping us to see the way of wisdom. 
And so the main point that we will see through chapter 10 is Solomon is telling us, stay away from folly. It is the antithesis of wisdom. Now, we'll see through chapter 10, it's not a carefully constructed argument, but it is a variety of short stories, case studies, proverbs, comparisons, exhortations. There are various things throughout this chapter. So one thing runs on to the next without any apparent link. So it's not my disconnectedness, but it is Solomon trying to pack a lot of wisdom in a few words. But we can see drawing the lines of the difference between wisdom and folly. So we have to ask ourselves throughout this question, am I living wisely or foolishly? Seems very simple. So what is a fool? Well, a fool is not someone who simply has a below average IQ. In fact, there are some very, very intelligent fools out there. A fool is one who lacks proper fear of God. They are prone to walk in the wrong direction. And this folly, this foolishness is often used right alongside wickedness. And Solomon has already addressed the heart of the fool several times. Chapter 4, we pointed to the fact that the fool is lazy. Chapter 7, he is ill-tempered. Chapter 2, he is morally blind. Chapter 9, he refuses the advice, the wisdom of others. And chapter 5 told us that the fool lives a life that is unpleasing to God. And so now Solomon adds that the fool is, in a sense, directionally challenged. Let's look at verses 2 and 3. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. So put together, verses 1 through 3 show the difference between one who is wise and one who is a fool. Now Solomon's not taking a dig at left-handed people. I myself am left-handed. I told Jake earlier in the week, my favorite saying is lefties do it right. So it's not simply that He wants to say something about those who are left-handed, but in the ancient world, right-handed people were everywhere. This was was dominant. As many uh, older people will tell you, as they grew up, everyone tried to teach them to be right-handed. Why is that? Well, because throughout history, the right hand has been associated with strength, with support, with the ability to provide and to save. It conveys Blessing. When a blessing was given in the Old Testament, it was by the right hand of the patriarch. It shows authority. We see that Jesus will sit at the right hand of the Father. At the end, we see that as the sheep and the goats are divided, the sheep will be at the right hand of God and the goats at the left. So Solomon says that a fool is headed in the wrong direction in life. And so very early on, we can ask ourselves, what direction are we headed in life? Are we walking in the way of the fool or are we walking in the way of the wise? This is not according to your standard or your definition of wisdom. 
Wisdom and folly are not subjective things. So we have to ask the question, according to God, which way are we headed? Toward temptation and evil? Or toward discipleship and growth? Are we drawing closer to God's people or are we pushing ourselves further away? And Solomon's point is that only a fool goes in the wrong direction. This is very serious. This is more serious than simply walking on the wrong path because the wrong path leads us to very devastating ends. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So the direction in which we walk and the gate through which we enter is a matter of eternal significance. And so we see very quickly that this idea about wisdom and foolishness has much more to do with simply whether or not we are seen as such. The significance is eternal. Now notice in verse 2, why does the fool go where he goes? It says it is by his heart. Commentator Charles Bridges said, the heart is the center of affection. It is the seat of knowledge. It is the source of purpose and emotion. It is the very soul of the spiritual life. This is why it is so important that we have a new heart that is transformed by the power of the gospel because it inclines which way we go. So which way is your heart inclined? Do you have a growing appetite for God and His Word? Do you find the Bible to be boring and stale? Are you moving toward God or away from Him in prayer? Are you pursuing sanctification in your life to eliminate sin? Do you ask, which way do I go? I think the first question we have to ask is, which way is my heart leaning? Is it going in the right direction? I think it's important for all of us to ask this of ourselves right now. There's no need to try and fool anyone. Let's not pretend. Let's just ask right now. Ask yourself, am I seriously leaning hard into God in the right direction? If not, what am I leaning hard into? Because that has become our God. Now look, verse 3, sadly, the fool doesn't even realize he's going in the wrong direction. Everyone knows that guy, right? Aimlessly trampling through life, making one foolish decision after another, and they seem completely oblivious to the reality of their own foolishness. And we want to say of them, surely he knows better. Well, no, he doesn't. Dan Allender wrote, The fool will follow a path that seems to be right. 
Even when the blacktop gives way to gravel, and gravel to dirt, and dirt to rocks, and rocks to debris, almost nothing will stop the fool from plunging ahead into peril. So notice the fool lacks so much sense that his words and his actions openly and directly communicate, I am a fool. Proverbs 13.16 says, A fool flaunts his folly. So why is Solomon so insistent on constantly harping on this difference between wisdom and folly? Because he realizes that folly leads to death. And so there's very, very easy application for us. It's simple. Don't be a fool. (laughs) Follow the course of wisdom, which is the way of Jesus Christ. So now Solomon is going to give us some practical wisdom on how to deal with fools that we will encounter through life. And there will be many. Look at verse 4. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offense, uh, great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves." There are so many in this world that live for themselves and not onto the glory of God, which is our purpose. And the Bible very clearly calls them fools. They're everywhere. They are seeking the three G's of a worldly man's desires. Glory, gold, and girls. In other words, for all of us, fame and recognition, great wealth and sexual immorality. Those three things pretty much sum up the heart of a sinner. So Solomon very quickly points to one source of all of this foolishness. He says in this context, it is the seat of the ruler. In other words, he is pointing out once again the government authorities. Now, of course, it's not 100% the case, but maybe more like 99.9%. Martin Luther commented on this, and he said, Just as dead flies ruin the best of ointments, so it happens to the best of counsel in the state, in the senate, or in war. Along comes some wicked rascal and ruins everything. So unfortunately, for many fools in places of, th- of authority, by the time their folly is found out, it's too late and the damage is done. And afterwards, many of us sit around and ask, how do, were they ever put in charge in the first place? How is it that they were ever put in a place of authority in the first place? And he points out what happens when foolish evildoers sit in the seat of authority. In verse 6, those with wealth and wisdom are not in places of power to use their resources for the greater good of the people. And the fool instead sits in their seat and everything seems upside down. 
And so when folly is enthroned, princes walk while slaves sit on a horse in luxury. And we have to think of the context here. As he writes about princes, he's writing about nobility, those with authority, those who are to be given great respect. When he's writing about the slave, it is one who worked for a master. It's not probably the type of slavery that we envision. It is one who works for the master, one who is uh, employed by and taken care of. And so if we think of it in this way, it is you calling the shots for your boss. This is upside down, Solomon is pointing to. And so only twice in chapter 10 do we see imperatives. Here's one of them. He gives us this story to assume. Assume a civil civil servant is subjected to unjust anger from a ruler. What does he command us to do? Verse 4, he commands that we stay calm. Now, listen, he's not calling us, and nowhere in the Bible are we called to live a life of being doormats. But grace and practical wisdom can be allies. After all, why would we stoke a fire that is already overheating? There is wisdom to be applied. So when we're ruled by fools, at the very greatest, we must recognize that there is a truly sovereign God over every aspect of creation. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So our humanity is only meaningful when we remember the sovereignty of God. Otherwise, it would be quite unbearable. But when we have an assurance of a sovereign God, we can faithfully fulfill the commands of submission, even to those who are evildoers, even to those who are fools. We see this several times in First Peter. He tells us to submit even when we are under persecution. First Peter two thirteen through 15. He calls servants to submit to their masters. He calls wives to submit to unbelieving husbands. Again and again, we see Peter giving commands of submission regardless of those who are in authority over us as long as we're not commanded to walk into sin. But why? Peter goes on to tell us in verse 21 of chapter 2 that in doing so, we are following in the footsteps of Christ. Now, ordinarily, the best response to angry, evil, foolish authorities is to stay and submit. Not return anger with anger and not to run away. But he's calling us to remain calm. And in time, use wisdom in available means to influence godly change. Consider the life of Joseph. He was in prison because of false accusations. Did Joseph raise a riot and throw up his hands and call this what it was? Very unjust? No, he patiently endured, and in the end, God used him for great means to a great end. So, 
The wisdom is don't be intimidated, don't respond in kind, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are called to submit and be patient. Wisdom will eventually prevail. We learned last week, even if that is not until the judgment day, it will prevail. And so Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.23, the greatest example of this is found in Jesus. Peter wrote, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. A Christian would never doubt that this was the way of wisdom. So for all of us to ask, who is an angry and foolish person in your life? How will you respond to them? The way to glorify God is to calmly and patiently submit to and trust in God. It is the way of wisdom that will prevail in the end. But Solomon goes on to point out that folly is self-destructive. And so as we learn how to respond to those who are foolish, he is now going to show us the results of foolishness and why it is that ultimately we can trust in the Lord because of all the ruin that comes by one's folly. This is why the wisdom that comes only from God is so very important. Look at verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So he gives us four different illustrations of men doing their occupations. In verse 8, we see the outcome of a familiar idea that those who plot evil against others in their plans... It will all eventually backfire on them. We see here a bit of poetic justice in the writing of Solomon. The ditch digger falls into the pit. In Psalm 7, David points out this similar reality. He writes, he makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into that which he just made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. Likewise, the man who breaks down a wall, paying no attention to danger on the other side, he breaks a boundary that was never meant to be broken, and he dies. So Solomon points out, dig the pit and you will fall in. Break down the wall and the deadly serpent of sin will bite you. That is some good wisdom. If you are digging a pit, if you are intentionally trying to lead someone else to fall into a pit that you have dug for their demise, you will find yourself making a wrong step in the midst of it and you will fall in it yourself. 
Remember, Jesus said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Why? Because the demise, the end, is treacherous. Similarly, God has created boundaries for us to maintain for our good. That we would live godly lives and that through us, He would be glorified. If we break through those walls, if we break through those boundaries, we will be bitten by the serpent of sin. Let me give you a good example of this. Within the covenant of marriage, God has established the boundary of spouses not committing adultery. I have yet to meet a married person who has committed adultery tell me that they weren't bit by their own sin in the end. They broke down the wall that God created for their good. And sin struck and sin destroyed. Another example, an angry father or mother wants more control. So they break down the boundary of meekness and self-control and patience. And so everyone around them lives on edge. And it leads to more chaos and more anger and ultimately in the end, less control. And so in the end, relationships sour and the family falls to pieces. Again, the serpent of sin has struck on the other side of the boundary that has been created by God. You see, verse 8 is full of incredible wisdom. And very quickly, Solomon does what he does best, and he gives us another dose of realism. He says, even those who are really engaged in legitimate activity can be hurt in that process. The significance is that those who try to serve fairly and justly may see in the end that their efforts too might blow up in their faces. And so while Solomon gives us the danger of folly, he reminds us that sometimes, even when we walk in wisdom, everything doesn't turn out the way that we hope. He's being very realistic in the realities of life. He goes on in verses 10 and 11 to point out that there is a wiser and safer way to live than by the way of folly. Wise men and women know where they're going They're working a plan to get there. That doesn't mean it will come to pass. But a plan is better than no plan at all. And in the end, it is the way of wisdom. Now, the fool, if he's honest, he will say something along these lines. My plan is to work as little as possible to play as many video games as possible, and maybe one day I'll decide to grow up. But until then, I have a date with my PlayStation. As you know, on average, 18 to 35-year-old men play more video games than any other age group. And they play, on average, brace yourselves, 20 hours per week. Are you serious? Is is life so meaningless and lacking of purpose that we have to live it through some fantasy world of buttons and joysticks? 
20 hours a week? Listen, I'll play something every now and then and I'll lose, but I'll play with you for a few minutes. But 20 hours a week? Seriously? That's almost a month and a half out of your entire year playing video games. That is foolish. That is the way of a fool. You take a life that God has given you to live for His glory and you waste it away in a fantasy world. The way of wisdom is having a plan and a direction. Walking toward the great celestial city with a purpose to go about every day of the week. Working hard for six days and resting on the Lord's day. And listen, none of that just happens. You don't just wake up and automatically start working hard all of a sudden. You don't just stumble into a life of godliness. You don't just accidentally love your spouse well. You don't just take time with your children unintentionally. The life of wisdom is the life that is lived on purpose. It has direction. There is godliness. There is intentionality because it is a life that is working as unto the Lord and not unto man. It is a life of eating and drinking and doing whatever is done to the glory of God. And so we have to ask ourselves, where are you headed? And listen, it's not enough that we would just want to walk in the way of wisdom. If we're not careful, our want-tos will give way to I wish I would haves. And then what? The bit about the snake charmer in Ecclesiastes is what he says. Who cares if there's a snake charmer if he doesn't charm the snake in the end? Then all you have is a guy with a flute and a funny hat dead on the ground. What good is it if you want to be a godly man, if you want to be a godly woman, if you want to be a godly husband, if you want to be a godly wife, if you want to raise godly children and have a healthy, growing relationship with the Lord? What good is, what good is it if you want that, but you do nothing to head in that direction? What in the world are you doing sitting on your couch 20 hours a week eating bags of Edo's? Cheetos, Doritos, Fritos. Listen, I don't, I don't believe in the power of the human self. I'm not talking about getting up and just willing yourself to do better and try harder. You're going to fail if that is your goal in the end. I'm not talking about God helps those who help themselves. That's a lie and it has nothing to do with the Bible. I'm not talking about you doing your part so God will do His. God owes you nothing and He's not just sitting back twiddling His thumbs waiting on you to act so He can finally do what He's been waiting on all these years. I'm talking about repenting of your sin of laziness. Your sin of greed, your sin of selfishness, your sin of self-righteousness. And then, and only then, are we able to rely upon the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit to transform and sanctify us. That we would live and walk 
and work on purpose. It is only by God's grace that your plans will have meaning and your life will have purpose. You can't do it on your own. And if you try, you will fail, I promise. I see it every single day. Nobody becomes holy by sitting all day on the couch. Nobody loves their wife fully by not doing something to work at it. Nobody raises godly children by wishing it to simply be so. Nobody leaves a godly legacy by simply thinking that it would be nice. It's not enough to want to. We have to live by grace-driven effort. Or else our want-tos will give ways to our I wish I would have. And so the wisdom is that we would repent and look to Jesus. Look at verse 12. The word of a wise man's mouth wins him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? Now Solomon moves into the area of the wise use of our words. Charles Spurgeon once said, the doorstep to the temple of wisdom is the knowledge of our own ignorance. In other words, we are not as wise as we think we are, and often our words very clearly reveal this to be true. So, to seek wisdom is to first admit folly. Several times throughout the Bible, in very convicting ways, we see that the way we use our words is a test of our wisdom. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. In other words, there is no, I didn't mean to say all those nasty things. I didn't mean to speak so hastily. No, you said exactly what your your heart intended. The words we speak are crucial to this comparison between wisdom and folly because they reveal what is at the center of our hearts. The word favor in verse 12 is the Hebrew word for grace. So that's not just favor, but it is favor that is undeserved. That helps us even more to understand what Solomon is saying about the words of a wise person. The words of the wise are a message of grace. They are a blessing to those who hear them. And they may not seem like a blessing at the time if they are hard words, but they are wise. They are gracious. The words of the wise are used to serve others. So let's ask ourselves, how am I serving others with words? Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Are your words graciously giving life to others? Let's be honest with ourselves. 
most of our words probably aren't used that way. And I'll be the first to raise my hand in guilt. Words have the power to give us what we want. Attention, a favor, a handout, a laugh. We use our words to build ourselves up. We use our words to tear others down. But wisdom. Words of wisdom are instruments of grace. So what about your words? Do you speak for the good of others or are you seeking to vindicate yourself and achieve your own agenda? James 1.19 reminds us that a wise person is slow to speak because sometimes the most wise approach to a situation is silence. Plato once said, wise men speak because they have something to say. Fools speak because they have to say something. A fool is consumed by his words. He has foot-in-mouth disease and constantly finds himself talked into a corner. And he lies to cover up other lies. He's never wrong and always has something to say that will trump whatever you just said because his life and his ideas and his experience must always be greater than everyone else's. And so if we are to have wise words and words are the overflow of the heart, We must have hearts that are radically consumed by God and His Word. Wise words only come from a wise heart. This is why God's Word must be stored in our hearts, that it will inform us, counsel us, direct us, challenge us, and keep us from sin in our words and in our actions. So what does this kind of heart look like? A wise heart is a humble heart. It fears God and puts others first. A heart of wisdom is a heart that is true. It moves the mouth to speak only words of truth. A heart of wisdom is a heart of gentleness. And the speech of a gentle heart is tender and mild. A heart of wisdom is a heart that is loving. It is a heart that speaks words of affection to others. And once again, we look to the life of Jesus, who most clearly displayed the heart of wisdom. Luke 4.22 says, All spoke well of Him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from His mouth. Do your lips contain such grace that others marvel when you speak? I'm not not just talking about here when we gather on the Lord's Day. I'm talking about in your home. When you speak, do others marvel at the grace contained within your words? What about your workplace? Are you a boss? Are you a leader of others? 
when you talk to those who work around you and for you, do they marvel at the grace with which you speak to them? This is a heart of wisdom. Solomon mentions several ways in which the fool speaks. There are many destructive ways that words destroy, and all of us have been on both sides of that exchange. Words can cause anger. Words can ruin relationships. They can carelessly reveal something that's better left unsaid. But once it's out, the damage is done. Verse 20, he gives us one example of the foolishness of our destructive words. Skip down to verse 20. He writes, even in your thought, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. In other words, if you say something foolish, before you know it, the whole world may be aware of it. Have you ever said something stupid and then get busted for it? I I haven't either. (laughs) This is where we get the phrase, a little bird told me. Solomon is addressing the words we speak against those in authority being brought back to them. And in turn, they come back to haunt us. But the reality is, whether we are criticizing authority or speaking evil against our neighbor, how often have we found ourselves with our heart in our throat, wondering just how it is we're going to spin those words that were brought back to us to make it sound not as bad as it really was when we first said it. You know, those little birds have a way of making the rounds. These days, it's called... Twitter. (laughs) Foolish speech is self-destructive and it destroys others. And it is also evil. Verse 13, Solomon calls it evil madness. Paul Tripp offers some helpful counsel as we consider our words. Listen to the talk in your home. How much of it is impatient and unkind? How often are words spoken out of selfishness and personal desire? How easily do outbursts of anger occur? How often do we bring up past wrongs? How often do we fail to communicate hope? How often do we fail to protect? How often do our words carry threats that we have had it and are about to quit? Stop and listen. And you will see how much we need to hold our talk to this standard of love and how often the truth we profess to speak has been distorted by our sin. A fool's words are self-destructive. They destroy others. They are evil and they are presumptuous. Verse 14, the fool makes boastful claims. And where he will go and what he will do when he gets there is what is on his lips. But as we've already learned, he has no intention of doing these things because these things, after all, take effort. And it is a fool who plots his course without recognizing that all that comes to pass will only come to pass if the Lord wills it to be so. Fools love to predict the future. It keeps them from dealing with the reality of their foolishness in the present. 
But for the fool, the one day that they speak of never seems to come. And so fools have words that are self-destructive, that destroy others, that are evil, and that are presumptuous. Look at verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. So Solomon completely changes gears here and he tells the story of a disaster that happens when a complete idiot is in charge. Now Solomon's reference here is to a child. He's speaking specifically about one who is immature, particularly in this context, one who is in political authority, who is childish, who is foolish in his mind and actions. He lacks the experience of wisdom. So Solomon simply wants to point out the trouble a nation can find itself in when it lacks mature, godly, and wise leadership. And Solomon describes a kingly court where gluttonous princes feast every morning. That is, they wake up in the morning to a royal party, complete with enough alcohol to reverse the sobriety that came from a few hours of sleep after the night's previous party. In other words, instead of rising out of bed to defend and work for his country, the king of the court of folly lies around in a drunken stupor with a full belly and an empty head. And he says, Woe to you, O nation, when this describes your rulers. Verse 17, Solomon is not saying that there's anything wrong with a proper feast at the proper time for proper purposes. He has again and again commended this time And again, we saw it just last week, eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of all that God has given us. But the Bible everywhere condemns the gluttonous, drunken laziness that we see in verse 16 and using a position of power for selfish pleasure and leisure that Solomon has described. And in the context that Solomon writes, namely government authorities and the nations they rule, the application for us is quite simple. Woe to any nation characterized by sinful entertainment and lazy self-indulgence and the widespread abuse of alcohol and other drugs, especially amongst those who are called on to lead. This applies to us personally as well. As born-again children of God, we are princes and princesses in His kingdom. We should know the proper time to feast to include the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of the eternal feast that awaits us with our Savior in heaven. We should know also when not to feast and to always reject the false entertainment of drunkenness and gluttony. Our greatest feast is on Christ the soul's greatest pleasure, the living bread, the living water of whom we partake daily and never again when we partake will we hunger or thirst. 
Back at verse 15, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Skip down to verse 18. Through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. So lastly, Solomon addresses the wise use of one's efforts. The slothfulness of the incompetent fool is rewarded with the decay of life's infrastructure. The fool has never learned to actually work. Verse 15 tells us, I think quite hilariously, he doesn't even know how to find his way to the city. Well, why would that be? Well, the city is where the work is. He doesn't even know how to get there. He's content on his mother's couch. One commentator wrote, The picture begins to emerge of a man who makes things needlessly difficult for himself by his own stupidity. And the end result is what we see in verse 18. While maintenance is always required, the fool simply neglects the entire structure. And Solomon gives us a picture of a fool so lazy as he sits and eats his Edos and plays his games on the couch, the entire house will collapse before he takes the time to climb onto the roof and patch a leak. Sloth is a deadly sin. In contrast, Solomon presents in verse 19 a hard-working individual that has all they need. Solomon shows the wisdom of hard work. It's a gift. It's Christian. It is biblical. It is necessary. Hard work is a part of who we are as Christian people. So what does Solomon mean exactly when he says money answers everything? Because we've seen him tell us time and time again that the pursuit of money, the pursuit of wealth is vanity in the end. Now, Solomon's not changed his mind. He still agrees with the rest of Scripture that money is nothing to hope in. It will fail us in the end. But it is helpful. Solomon is speaking from a practical standpoint. Yes, money makes a terrible God. But if we have enough money, we can buy whatever we need. Bread is a daily necessity. Fine wine is a delicious pleasure. If we have the money, we can have bread and wine plus anything else we might need or want. But there is something else far more important that our money can do. And that is advance the kingdom of God. A wise person works hard not only to get what he needs and what he wants, but to generously give from a glad heart to honor God and to celebrate the good things in his world, making a major investment in the work of God's kingdom. And so in Ecclesiastes in general, and in chapter 10 specifically, we have some of the greatest wisdom the greatest practical wisdom that the Bible has to offer. And you may be thinking right now, I want that. I want to walk in this wisdom. I want to be the one who is a wise man or a wise woman according to the Scriptures. The only way to walk to the right and not to the left is the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
that as we abide in Christ, as we rest in Christ, as we turn our hearts, incline our hearts toward Jesus in every aspect of our lives, in our words, in our work, in our submission to authority, in all of these things, lest we strive for the narrow gate, we will be walking the path of fools. I pray for all of us that our hearts are inclined to Christ, who is the fulfillment of all wisdom. He is the fulfillment of all that the Bible calls wise. Let us live and walk and serve and work and play for the glory of God because of Jesus and what he has accomplished for his people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for wisdom. Thank you that we not be left to question what is wise, what is good, what is right, what is pleasing to you, and what in the end brings life instead of death. God, I pray for all of us. I pray in some way, however it is for each of us individually, that your words this morning have brought us great conviction, the power of the Holy Spirit to make aware to us where we walk in foolish ways. Not that we would walk with a great weight of sin and guilt, but that we would repent and we would trust in Christ to transform, to renew, and to put our hearts on the path of wisdom. Lord, for those who are lazy, I pray that you give them great desire to be purposeful and vigorous in their labors, to not waste the hours of the day. For those who have harsh words on their lips, I pray, God, that you would give them hearts of wisdom that their hearts would overflow with grace and meekness and love and joy and peace. For those who walk in the constant way of foolishness, backing themselves into corners and putting words before them that they know are untrue, or hurtful, I pray, God, that you would sanctify them. Give them a great desire to be gracious that others would marvel at their speech. For those in authority and leadership, I pray, God, that you help them to be humble, to be gracious and loving, to be fair. For those who are called to submit to leadership, I pray, God, that you would help us all to do so patiently and with love. For all of us who are called to live godly, productive lives, doing great labors to bring about 
the great ends of advancing your kingdom, advancing the gospel to the nations. I pray, God, that you would make us to be hard workers, good laborers, and generous givers of all that you have given to us. Help us, Lord, to walk in the way of wisdom, to walk in the way of Jesus, who is the total of all wisdom. Help us to rest in him, to follow him, to be united to him. For your glory and for our great joy and satisfaction. In Jesus' name, amen.